Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 90. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Andy Root about his new book, The Church After Innovation, questioning our obsession with work, creativity, and entrepreneurship. Let's do this. I am curious, like, as, as you were describing about the church is not the star, there's so many implications behind it. Like, you know, we started off talking a little bit about capitalism and whatnot, and and so much of it is, right? Like, it is the star because you got to upkeep this capitalistic way of structure and systems, right? And and just like, how do you how do you shift? <laughs> it's like because then you gotta you gotta let go of all this stuff. You do, and it becomes really quite scary, you know. So I also want to be aware of that too, you know. Like I don't want to be the flippant person who's like, "Oh, who cares about our denominations becoming weaker or our seminaries becoming more fragile? Who cares about all that stuff?" Because you know, quite honestly, I live inside of that, so it is a, a pretty strong statement of privilege to be like, "Ah, oh, decline." Who cares about that? As I sit, in, you know, in an endowed chair in my seminary, you know what I mean? Like, I want to be really aware that there are. There are risks within that and that we do all live in at one level or another in, in different kind of tones in kind of late capitalist societies. And that pushes us. I think one of the things that that does that I try to reveal in this, this book that will be out in October called The Church After Innovation is just how that, that push um, or living in late capitalism, the, the kind of framework of growth just seems to encompass everything, you know, like it, the growth just has this kind of gravity to it that pulls it in. And it just makes sense because this is the kind of capitalist structures we're working in that everything has to grow or it, or it will, it will not only die, it will, it will crash into a million like bloody pieces, you know, like if things aren't continuing to grow, it, it just, it becomes mayhem. And that you kind of stabilize, this is kind of Hartman Rose's point, like the way Western societies stabilize themselves is through constant growth. So it's dynamic stabilizing, which means that you just have to continue to grow and grow and grow. And if you don't, then uh, you're in big trouble. Like if, even if you're not in decline, like a, a company that has plateaued in its growth is no longer investable, you know? And so and when that gets transferred to the church, it's a very different kind of logic when you're like, well, if our church isn't growing at eight to 12% a year in membership or in giving, then we're a dead church. That's a very different logic than thinking of how the spirit moves, but we exist in this kind of reality. But really where that book is trying to kind of get to is it, it, it fronts capitalism, not as a way to, to kind of talk about capitalism. I'm not that kind of radical or you know, like I'm not that much of a social theorist to like just try to unmask capitalism, but to ask the question, and you guys can tell me if this is as true in Canada as it is in the States, but it feels like the last, well, probably three, four years before the pandemic, and now even on the other side of the pandemic, that Protestantism in America at least has had kind of innovation fever. Like everything has been about innovation, whether it's a seminary, whether it's an endowment, whether it's camps, whether it's denominations or congregations, everyone's thinking about innovation and how do we innovate? My own school innovation has become like a central dynamic of our, our vision statement. And really the book is just to ask the question, where does that come from? And we should kind of get clear what innovation is 
about and uh, what goods it kind of is is aimed towards and in where it rests because it doesn't just it doesn't just exist in a kind of pure reality that we can kind of pick up and use it it exists inside of a, a larger kind of cultural a cultural system and and obviously we've already pointed to capitalism being where it sits but a certain kind of capitalism a kind of neoliberal capitalism that demands a lot of individuals that tries to kind of wipe away regulations so you can kind of race towards growth and makes growth really significant and that's not to say we shouldn't learn from all sorts of different kind of thought experiments and, and reflections and books written on innovation. I think the church should grab hold of innovation, but we should be very careful as we do that um, and, and think about kind of where it comes from and, and uh, yeah, the way it shapes us. I think what's really important about some of the work you're doing right now, and I think it's embedded in the title of your upcoming book, which is Questioning our obsession with work, creativity, and entrepreneurship is that you're willing to explore and dive deeper and unpack, perhaps deconstruct a little bit about the obsession part and where it comes from and what's the framework it has kind of uh, been birthed out of, like because it exists out of somewhere, right? And I think you talk about it in 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 the the book that you, that was released earlier this year when you use the words like consumption and commerce and you already mentioned it there too which i feel like it was a little bit of like a you know hobbit moment where it's like you know you know a prequel to what's coming up in your next book right it's like you know you you're already setting it up and you know you'll resolve one storyline but then the next storyline is just right about to to come out but you're questioning where it is and so the risk is not necessarily and i think people will just inherently interpret it as the risk is oh if we kind of question it maybe we'll you know we won't like what we see or it's we're going to decline or plateau or whatever but rather i think maybe the risk that you're really going towards is really like let's open like to use the analogy pandora's box a bit and see what's underneath there that we can't even see or blinded to and but we're obsessed to it and we are we, we don't even realize we're operating in that way and, and, yeah. this, and, and this uh is not even just for you know traditional churches or, or modern the modern church but even like church uh church plants yeah uh, the missional church movement is trying to just do this as well to almost like maybe not even realizing just pseudo attracting and, and trying to you just rebuild that consu- consumption culture and yeah. you may not even know it but yeah 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 absolutely i mean i i do think you know like we we talked about that's a, a little bit of the, the probably burden of my my books too is i really am quite fascinated in how the things that we don't even realize um shape us and, and shape us in a certain way and you know i guess that's you know what keeps me going back to charles taylor is the way he helps us think about even the frameworks we don't really explicitly articulate or aren't aware of, those are, those are forming us. We're being formed in a certain way. So really what I'm just trying to front in, the, in this new book that will be out in October is just like, okay, if we're really into innovation, whether it is, again, like for church planners and in missional reasons, or it's to keep kind of dying congregations, aging, dying congregations alive, if innovation is the way to kind of win the kind of, uh, or to upend or to, to, to resist the kind of decline that I think I'm a little suspicious of, which is its numbers, its, its budgets. 
But if we follow that, in what way does it form us? How are we being formed? And that then isn't to say we should then therefore never do innovation, but it is to say we do owe it to stewarding the church and we owe it to the concrete people, the the, the real people that we minister to, to be aware of where this comes from and, and, and how it's forming us. And so, you know, this book particularly, it's it doesn't have as many answers as it's just trying to point that out and and point out how how deep that goes and that we 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 should really be aware of 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 how that plays and how that impacts us and how it forms us. I mean, at the end really there is a through line with all these books of thinking about what it means to be formed, what it means to be formed into Christ and being in Christ and it is to then to say that there are other forces that form us and there's no way for us to opt out of the cultures we live in or the societies that we live in, but we should be kind of reflective on the way they, they form and shape us and uh, the way they give us kind of horizons that uh, we, we take, we take for granted that maybe we shouldn't take for granted, you know, ways of ways of being in the world that we can maybe push back against or just be aware of um, how they're shaping us. If I could just ask a bit of a personal question. Yeah. What was this journey like for you to unpack parts of this stuff in your own life to then realize, oh, I was shaped in this way, or my participation in the church was shaped in this way? Like, what was that journey like for you, particularly in starting to have your eyes opened by the Spirit to see that, oh, I'm operating this way because I've been formed in this way? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's certain ways that throughout all the books that that happens. Like, I, I mean, I hope without being kind of annoying, um, but I hope in a real way that my own self has dropped into these books. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, I try to reveal who I am a little bit again, without, without it becoming a memoir or something like that. But, um, but really the, the most convicting one, I think is this, is this book on innovation because it, talking a lot about money I mean, I, I just have to admit, like I'm the, I'm as impacted by the kind of shape of neoliberalism as as anyone, you know, kind of thinking about how I turn my own self into a little business, you know what I mean, and and think about how I'm optimizing myself and how how I'm I, how I'm growing towards this and and how I'm thinking about myself as this like creative juggernaut potentially or like there's all these ways that uh, especially that book I think I'm just as deeply connected to it. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm almost writing to myself more than even, even the church, you know, the, that the way, what becomes the measure of the good is like how you grow and how you advance and how you're, how you're accruing something. Um, yeah. So I, I hope in a real way, you know, like, uh, my favorite quote from Luther is, uh, when he talks about theologians, he says a theologian is made not by reading, writing, and for Luther, terrible speculation. He doesn't want any speculation. Um, so the theologian isn't made by reading, writing, or speculating, but by being damned and going to hell. You know, it's a pretty like, read that on Halloween kind of uh, quote, you know, like it, it's a little bit of a horror, a horror movie uh, kind of quote, but it, it, what he's really getting at is it's by living. And he actually says it's by living. Um, no, it's by dying and being damned that a theologian is made. And so I hope at the kind of core of my own theological construction is, is really me trying to wrestle with what I mean, what I think it means to confess Christ and him crucified inside this world that I inherit is as much as anyone else. So I hope I'm writing as someone who stands deeply within it and is, uh, you know, is, is, is much of a sinner as anyone else, as much as someone who's caught in these cultural 
these, this cultural currents as anyone. I don't, I definitely don't think writing about these cultural currents that I've escaped to some kind of, you know, plateau or cliff and I'm looking down on the current. I think I'm as deep in the water as anyone else. And, uh, and, and maybe uh, more committed to it than, than, I, than I should be. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Anyone reading your books, and I know the three of us having read your books, are feeling a little bit like they are mirrors pointing back at us as well and seeing in our own lives how we have been caught up in these ways and been shaped to approach ministry and being a pastor and being a follower of Christ in these ways. It's so needed for us. And this is why I think we're, we, we love chatting with you is it's just because and, and reading your books, because, you know, we are seeing the necessity to to have these things revealed and and then to be able to allow God to give us a new way forward uh, because things are changing so much in our world. And you write a lot about the secular age and you dialogue with Charles Taylor and, and his work. And I think more and more the impetus and the pressure that churches feel is to respond in a way to survive, respond in a way to be able to be relevant, to be able to thrive or to survive. And, and I think what you write about is, is pointing to a new way. Yes, it could be scary. And yes, it means like, yeah, hey, we're not expending energy to have this thing anymore. It's, it, you know, that's a quote that you use so many times in your books. It, it almost became a drinking game. Of course, Tim Horton's <laughs> double, double only, you know, right, or, right. yeah. But, you know, to have a church or to have this or to possess it or to master it, you know, even at the very start of your last book about kind of the whole idea is if God is God, then we can't find him. Right. You know, he's the only one that can find us. And that's, that's such a relinquishing of kind of control for us and how, you know, kind of bridging over to this new book coming out and talking about innovation is once again pointing to this part of us, this part of our churches that is still so wrapped up in, in something that, that we need more and more voices to show us, hey, you know, we're wrapped up in this. Like we're entangled in this, we're obsessed about this, and how can we perhaps understand it, see where it came from, and start to see a new way for us to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and to me, that's that's the huge, I guess, the huge task that's quite difficult is, I mean, in some ways, this is I don't mean it to sound like this, but there is a necessity to kind of give up and. Not in a defeatist way of giving up, but a giving up in the sense of almost in the more mystical kind of spiritual experience of of giving up, um, giving up control, giving up that kind of drive, like you're saying, to have things, to have more, to to have a future um, where then the church becomes a star of its own story that's trying to have all those things. You know, um, there is a kind of release to just be, and there is a yeah, I mean, there it's a really quite risky thing. Um, and you, you, you point to this from the, the churches in the crisis of decline that I, I try to write it through this alternate history of this church. And one of the things that opens this church up is that they realize uh, a young man kind of stumbles into the church and, and wants help finding God, which hopefully the storytelling doesn't seem kind of as direct on the nose as we're saying it in the podcast here. Hopefully it makes sense. But, um, 
but they realize they don't know how to do that, that they don't have this kind of small city church that's, uh, you know, in every measure is on decline, doesn't have any magical way to help this person find God and that they've been really caught up with how they can have enough to survive. And now they just need to be together and wait for God to arrive. And, uh, and yeah, that is the big point to learn from Karl Barth, that if we are talking about the God who is God, you don't get to control this God. Um, you can't get your doctrine right in a way that can conjure this God with the right words. And, um, you know, don't let, you know, there's, you should all be listening to the, these podcasts over and over again, but you know, the idea that you could listen to a podcast and then it could help you preach in a way that you could, you know, God could just abracadabra show up. That's not the God who is, who is God. And so if we're really talking about the God who is God, we just have to wait on this God. And that's a very different way of being in a very kind of, <laughs> a very uh, kind of countercultural sense of in the midst of the decline is to try to actually do less. There's a very uh, well-known New, uh, New Testament scholar uh, who taught at Luther Seminary and Princeton Seminary for, for many years. And he had a little pedagogical phrase he would use in his classroom that I think is kind of informative to pastors too. And he would say that when things aren't going well in the classroom, I'm working too hard. When things aren't going well, I'm working too hard. And what he meant by that is he's trying to do too much and he's over-functioning and he's not giving the learning back to the students. And I sometimes think that that's something that pastors could learn well in their, also in their congregations. Like when it's not going well, uh, there is a certain sense that you're depending on your own talent, your own skill, your own creativity, your own innovation to solve these problems. Um, and maybe it's that you're working too hard um, and you know, maybe not working in a sense that opens you up uh, to the presence of God, to stop and to be and to contemplate uh, and to open your, open your life up um, and open your congregation up to, to being together as we wait for God. Those are good words. That is a good challenge for us indeed. And I think in particular, it, it actually, for at least for your books, they need to be sat with and kind of processed through, especially as you dialogue with other theologians as well. And I can imagine someone just skimming through a book and, you know, reading the chapter that you wrote about Karl Barth and Mozart and just be like, oh, we need more arts and creativity. That's the way we will essentially bring about resonance. But you know what? That's exactly the opposite of what you're talking about, <laughs> right? And But, you know, they need to be sat with. They need to be, you know, processed and, and, and kind of, you know, digested. Uh, in a bit. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your upcoming book and the specific person that you are going to be dialoguing with. Yeah. So there, there's always a, a few, but the one of the major dialogue partners in this book, who I think is really a quite interesting person, is a guy by the name of Andres Retzviks, who's a, you know, you can see the, the kind of continental uh, leanings here as another German uh, social theorist. But he's written two really interesting books, and one's called The Invention of Creativity. And so this does push back against exactly what you're saying, which is like, oh, we read about Mozart. We just need to get the arts more in. And, and there is something that's really true. Like this, this new book ends by thinking about poetry. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be in dialogue with Charles Taylor for the last, you know, eight or nine years without making the poet very important. You know, like for, for Charles Taylor, the poet always wins in the end, you know, and, and, and the beginning of Taylor's work is really to think like, okay, all the things that we're talking about human beings as being just these kind of uh, functional uh, behavioralist kind of machines can't be true because human beings write poetry. 
And if human beings write poetry, there must be some kind of spiritual dimension to what it means to be a human being. There must be something deeper um, at play. So I do end this upcoming book with thinking about the poet as, as significant, but there's a certain way that we have to be very careful again, that in our kind of cultural reality, that creativity has become well, a, a kind of consumer good. And, and what, I, what I point to is we're living in this kind of neoliberal um, time of late capitalism. We're living in an aesthetic economy. We're not living anymore in the kind of middle 20th century, living in a standardized um, a, economy, uh, in a kind of organized economy where things are very rationalized and we're dealing with this kind of assembly lines and we're dealing with very clear clear lines in in companies and corporations. We're dealing with an aesthetic economy where, shockingly, I think, um, every part of the economy is trying to be creative. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, well, what what do we get some of this? Some of you, you guys are probably a little bit too young for this, but like, remember when Subway was really big uh, and they're talking about being a sandwich artist, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're in an aesthetic economy when people who are making subs are artists or are kind of given the <laughs> illusion of being artists. You know what so I mean? Good. Like you're, this is, and you know, you go back to a kind of standardized capitalism and organized capitalism. Nobody wanted to be an artist. You know, everybody wanted to be a rational scientist. Like the NASA engineer was who everybody wanted to be. And now everybody wants to be kind of the Silicon Valley kind of bohemian artist, you know? So this is a very different, different kind of economy we exist in. And for us then, you know, when anyone says to us, you're creative, we take it always as a compliment, you know, like, oh, aren't you a creative, creative one? Or if someone said to you like, oh man, you're a really creative pastor. You'd say, well, damn right. Thank you. Yeah. You know, like you feel really confident about that. You feel really good about that. But you go back 200 years and if someone said, you know, you are a very creative pastor, you would be really well aware that they're calling you a heretic. <laughs> like they oh, think man. that you, you are, you know, out there by calling you creative. They meant that you are outside the tradition. You're outside what can be trusted, you know, but we almost all take that as, as a real compliment right now. And so what kind of creativity are we talking about? What are we talking about getting the arts back in? And so drawing off Retzvik's and his invention of creativity is his uh, second book is called a society of singularities. And he says, what really pushes even this kind of economy is this real focus on trying to be singular, singularly unique. And that's how you win in this aesthetic economy is you become singular. You want to be the coffee shop like no other coffee shop. You, you want to be a church that's not like any other church. And so you can really see the difference in congregational life between a kind of organized capitalism and aesthetic capitalism and how that works within Protestant congregational life. Where, I mean, you just think of somewhere, I mean, we've already mentioned the purpose-driven thing. Just think of the way Rick Warren built Saddleback. Saddleback is, well, just until the last, what, month ago, where they were kicked out of the Southern Baptists uh, denomination. They were Southern Baptists, but they hid that, you know, when, because they were entering into an aesthetic economy and you didn't want to be standardized in a denomination. But, you know, if you go back and look at a lot of churches built in the mid 20th century, they were very, very much trying to broadcast what denomination they were in, you know, um, that this is this is the denomination they're part of. And now most of our churches try to be unique and singular by naming themselves after some kind of ecological reality that they've destroyed to build their church, you know, like Deer Run Church or, uh, you know, uh, the the meadows or something like that, you know, that you, you end up naming your church after the thing that you destroyed to build your church. Um, 
rolling hills, something like that. All right. I don't know if we, that got that's too controversial or too obscure there. Um, but you see how singularity becomes this real focus. One of the things I really want to tease out, and then we'll go into volume six as well, is how, if we're not careful, that move towards creativity, um, that move towards singularity does something to the self. And it makes the self the most important thing. And that what really, I think, becomes potentially problematic for pastoral identity is that if we're not really careful with innovation, we, we push pastors to try to be creative juggernaut selves, and they actually form their people in the, in the same way. And I think this becomes quite a dangerous reality where it becomes the kind of negative sides of the age of authenticity, where what becomes most important is your own creative, unique self in a competition of that, that, that creates a competition to be more unique than, than all others. And uh, you can just see how that plays in within this kind of late neoliberal um, capitalist society where you're trying to be singular so you can win some kind of market share. And uh, I worry about that. So we need to have, I think, a move towards art um, and the creative, but we have to be very careful what we mean by that. And I think Retzvix uh, helps us uh, think about that. Man, this has been such a fruitful conversation, and I'm sure we could go on and on and on. But I think we're going to have to call it for our podcast episode, and perhaps just one question remaining just for you to just to hear your insight on is having navigated through the pandemic, and of course, we're still feeling the effects of it, how do you think that has particularly shaped kind of the direction of your writing? And how is that specifically, I would almost ask, has it highlighted or emphasized specific things you want to tackle more into because you saw it play out more in the pandemic? I just want to ask, how has like, these last couple of years really perhaps affected things in your writing? Yeah, so like you, you mentioned this already, the, these, both these books were written during the pandemic, really during 2020, you know, like right in the, the, the heat of the lockdowns. So both of them are pandemic babies in some ways. And it, it was like getting up and just pounding away at my computer was a way for me to deal with the existential crises of, of the pandemic, you know, like just to kind of stay busy. Cause I'm a, I'm a pretty severe introvert and uh, a avid endorsement. So I just felt like, you know, the, the, the pandemic was, I was made for it, you know, I was like, Oh, well, this is, this really sucks for the world and it sucks for, you know, my travel points on my airline, but I was made to be in my basement all day. And yet I found <laughs> like, you know, I found after a few months that it really started to get to me, you know, like I got so deep in my head that I, I, I needed to be with people like you guys. And, you know, um, like Bernard and I were in, in Hamilton together. Like I needed to be in a room like that and get out of my head and, and talk to people. And, um, and so I think these books really served a purpose of having people like you all before me, even if it was just in my imagination, trying to, to kind of write to them, you know? So in many ways, the pandemic has, has taken me deeper in the importance of persons in relationship and how significant that is. And that however we come out of this pandemic time, and clearly there's going to be more digital dynamics to our congregational lives than before. And that will be a good thing. You know, like doing meetings on Zoom is a good thing when you just have to do legislative stuff and plan a few things and, and move on. Like that, I'm all for that. 
But I think it also has pushed me to the importance of bodies that are actually together. And what does it mean to, to really be in the same room together and, uh, and, and sharing a space and that that's really important for persons. And it's really important for a, a worship community. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I feel like what you just shared parallels what you write about because you talk about so much about resonance and about being in relation with others and how that is so key to where we are needing to go in terms of, uh, you know, not just getting in our own heads or making ourselves or our church the star of the story, but to really remember like being called toward a way of relating to God, to others and uh, not living in that echo chamber <laughs> of kind of things. But yeah, I, I think that's why we, we really, really love chatting with you. So thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Great to talk to you guys. And that's going to be it for our episode today. Thank you guys so much for listening in and joining this conversation. How are you wrestling with what Andy Root was talking about? Definitely pick up and read his books to see how Dr. Andy Root is continuing to wrestle through the secular age especially his new one coming up called The Church After Innovation, questioning our obsession with work, creativity, and entrepreneurship. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our episode. Share it with others who you think it might be helpful. That helps us to get this conversation out there. We'd also love to hear how you are continuing to process and internalize and contextualize all these things you're hearing. You could always reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or by email at contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.